Masechet Kitubot, Dafnun. We begin with a couple of more ordinances that were enacted at Usha. We saw a couple of them already. This one's pretty famous. Amar Rabbi Ila'a. Be'usha hitkinu hamevazbez al yibazbez yoter michomesh. Someone who wants to give away his money, he may do so. It's very nice to give charity, but one should not give more than one-fifth of uh, one's money. Tanyana mehachi hamevazbez al yibazbez yoter we have that not only as an enactment in Usha, but the same law as a Baraita, that one who wants to, interesting word that they choose, because it kind of means to waste. Uh, if you want to waste your money, that's fine, but don't waste more than a 20th. Interesting to think about, to call giving charity wasting. Um, uh, the idea is that if you're giving too much away, uh, then you're not giving it carefully enough. And then one will become poor himself. In fact, one time something happened. A certain person wanted to give away more than a fifth, and his friend did not let him. Who was that friend? It's Rabbi Yeshevav. Another version of that story. Others say that the person who wanted to give away more than 20% was Rabbi Yeshevav himself, and the friend who did not let him was Rabbi Akiva. Um, good. Amar Ram Nachman, Ritem Arav Acha, Bar Yaakov, Maikera, Vechol Hashetiteni, Aser, Aseren Nulach. What's a, a, a source for this from a pasuk? When Yaakov Avinu, he promises to, to Hashem, he says, if I go uh, safely on my journey and come back, then I will give a tenth of all of my possessions to you. And he uses a double verb, ased aserenu, which in Peshat simply means, I surely will give a tenth of it. But because it's a double verb, the Midrash reads it as a tenth and another tenth, ased and aserenu lach. So that's altogether 20%. Yaakov, we presume, is giving the maximum he can. Uh, he might, if he was permitted to, he would give even more because he wants to show his gratitude if he's able to run away from Mesav and come come back um, on his trip and uh, be successful. So that from that we learned that's the most. Hold on, the math doesn't work out. The first, the second tenth is not equal to the first tenth. The first tenth is, is in fact 10%, that's 10. But then you're left with 90. 10% of 90 is only 9. So it's going to only be 19% altogether, not 20%. No, it, was, it could have said, said, but since I says I said I said in nu nu means it I will give a tenth of it meaning the second tenth is equal to the first first tenth so it's not a tenth of whatever is left but the same tenth though so therefore that is in fact twenty percent all right the reason the basic reason for this law is that if someone gives away too much of one's money then he will be poor himself and have to rely on the community so it's better to give in a sustainable way uh, by giving between 10 and 20 percent uh, all the time uh, every year and that way one can uh, continue to be successful and give more in a long-term way this is likely a polemic against other 
groups like the Dead, the Dead Sea sect and Christian, early Christians, other ascetic groups who would give away all their money all at once, uh, which seems like it's very nice, but then they become poor and then other people have to, uh, have to pay for them. And so that doesn't do anyone any good. Um, uh, there are exceptions to this rule where it could, could be sustainable to give more than 20%, for example, at one's deathbed or for certain needs. Uh, some say this 20% is only if you're consecrating it to the Beit HaMikdash, uh, so where more than 20% is really not necessary. Uh, but if you're supporting uh, other kinds of charity, then it would be permitted. So, all right, this law in this final application has a lot of different, uh, a lot of interesting discussion, but it's a, a fundamental idea that if one gives too much away, then that would be uh, live as biz, because then you're just giving it away for the sake of giving it away, uh, but uh, not doing it in a thoughtful, planned way that will maximize one's long-term giving. So far, we saw three different uh, enactments that were done at Usha. They were all mentioned in the name of Rabbi Il'ah, but the chain of transmission goes less and less. Shemot allowed these traditions go less and less. The first one was quoted by Rabbi Il'ah in the name of the Shakish, in the name of Rabbi Osebar Hanina. The second one was quoted in the name of Rabbi Il'ah in the name of Shakish. But that's it. And the third one is just to be without quoting anyone before him. So we're just noting um, this yirida uh, of the uh, of the quotation of Dorot, uh, so to speak, and to remember the order of these three statements, the first one that had the longest chain, chain of transmission was talking about ketanim, that a father has to support his children while they are minors. Uh, that was the first takana that was made. Um, and the second one is that if a father gifts all of his property to his children, the estate still has to provide for their father and his wife um, afterwards. And Bizbizu is the last one that we just mentioned. All right. Now, another Takana of Usha. This is about the curriculum of education. And in Usha, they said a person should mitgalgel, which means to roll with. Be easygoing on his son until 12 years old. Now that you should try to teach your son, but uh, before 12 years old, do it in an easygoing manner. After 12, you go down in, uh, into his life, meaning you get, uh, you get much more involved and force him to study whether he wants to or not. So I guess nowadays that's more or less the uh, transition from elementary school or to uh, you know middle school or middle middle school to high school. So you know when the kid's little, then you know uh, 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 make sure that the learning will be fun. They they could something that they can handle. But uh, twelve years old, they got to get serious about it. Hold on, we have contradictory advice about education that says less than six years old do not accept a student. Too little because the less than six, uh, they um, uh, they're just going to run around. They can't concentrate, so there's no point in trying to teach 
someone who's less than six. Once they're six years old, then accept them as a student and you should force feed them like you feed an ox. Uh, you want to fatten up an ox like, uh, you know, veal. Um, so, so too, you take a child and you stuff him with Torah as much as you can, which sounds like that would be by force, just like the animal you feed by force, the child you also teach by force. Interesting, the six years old is also today. We start first grade um, around, uh, uh, around six years old as well. So according to the, according to the first statement, until, until 12, you treat them, uh, easygoing way and only force them after 12. According to this, the transition is at six years old. So we have two answers. Now, was talking about if the kid is willing, then, you know, he can handle it. A six-year-old already has the mental capacity to learn. So try your best to uh, teach him as much Torah, you know, stuff him full of information um, if he's willing, but don't force him. And right? you don't go down and threaten his, uh, his life, so to speak, until he is 12 years old. Um, so you, you try your best if he's willing between six and 12, from uh, zero to six, don't bother. Uh, from 6 to 12, if he's willing, stuff him as much as he can. At 12, then you force him. Or another way to reconcile these two statements is we're talking about different subject matters. Between 6 and 12, that's when you want to stuff him like an ox with scripture. Um, stuffing like an ox, meaning that you're going to keep repeating it and teach them reading and memorizing and so that they know the whole the whole Tanakh, that's Mikra. Whereas, uh, for, um, from, from at 12 years old, that's when we, you should force them to study Mishnah. Uh, if they want to study a little Mishnah before, if they want to, that's fine. But, uh, at 12 years old, that's when you would force them to begin Mishnah. Interesting, this is a little bit different, a little bit later these ages than what we read in Perkavot, which is at 5 and 10. Um, okay, Damar Abaye, Amra Li M. Another similar statement is Abayez, he says mother, but this is really his stepmother who brought him up. This is closer to we read in Pirkei that when someone is six years old, they should start studying Tanakh, and at ten years old, they should start reading, uh, studying Mishnah. And a thirteen-year-old boy, once he reaches thirty, uh, yeah, thir- once he reaches boy thirteen. 13 years old can start fasting the 24-hour fasts and a girl uh, must start fasting when she is 12 years old. Now that we mentioned one piece of advice that I quoted from his stepmother, we're going to quote more. And this is about uh, dangerous situations that a child can be in. It's related to the one before because also talking about a six-year-old who was stung by a scorpion. scorpion. On the day that he completes his sixth year, what we would call his seventh birthday, um, he will not live. That's not good. My asute. So what's his cure? You take bile of a white vulture and you put it in beer, rub it on the kid, and make him drink a little, and then he'll be just fine. Uh, it doesn't sound like this is kosher, but I guess it's uh, life-threatening, so... 
That would be a good idea. Hi, Bar Shata de Tariq Le Zibura Biomad Mishlam Shata La Haye. If a one year old is stung by a hornet, then on his the final uh, uh, his on his birthday, on his next birthday, he will not live. Maya Sute was secure. Asvata de Diklabe Maya Neshafye Venashkeye. You put palm tree fiber in water and rub it on him and also make him drink it. And then he should be fine. Uh, so back to education of a six-year-old. If you put your child less than six-year-old in school, all you're going to be doing is running after him and you won't be able to catch him. Uh, so kids that age, they need to go out and exercise and be strong. And they're not going to be able to sit in one place and study all day. So uh, don't bother. Ika de Amre, Haverav Rasin Acharav and Magi'in Oto. But another version says if you start his education before six, then he will get a head start and he'll be very successful in his studies to the point that his friends will try to run after him and they won't be able to catch up to him. So uh, do, do a, you know, six is the minimum that you have to make him study, but before that, even better. And actually, both of them are correct and not contradictory. Halish vegamir, meaning if you're able to get a kid to sit down and learn under six, they will learn well, but they'll also be weak. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, you have two types of kids, uh, those that are good at sports and they're strong, that's good. Uh, and you have the nerds who are bad at sports, but they're really smart. So uh, the one who uh, can't quite sit still and is running around, that's good for their health. And so they'll be good and strong. Uh, but if they do sit down and learn under six, it's good for their intellectual growth, but they're going to be physically weak. There's a trade-off uh, between the two skills. Or another way to uh, reconcile these two is they're talking about two different types of kids. One who is, who is weak, a weak child, do not bring him to school. He needs to go run around and become strong. Whereas if a kid is already healthy and fine, then he can, then he can uh, be brought to school and he'll be able to be both physically uh, well and he'll be uh, able to grow intellectually also. In other words, you don't have to pick one or the, one or the other. You could be good at sports and be smart as well. Okay, back to the Takanot of Usha, and here's another one where they instituted that a wife who sold the property that she brought into the marriage, if a wife owns property, she brings it into the marriage, the law is that the husband is allowed to use it and benefit from its, its um, produce during the marriage. At the end of the marriage, she gets it back. So since she gets it back, if she sells it during the marriage, well, she can't totally sell it because right now the husband is using the produce. But the point is, he, she is selling the rights to the land after the end of the marriage. The buyer will then get the land. She's selling the future um, right to the land. And she does that while her father is alive. And then she dies. Now the husband 
wants to wants it and does not want it to be sold, he can uh, repossess it from the purchasers. He kind of has the right of refusal, and he can say, "No, no, I want it. I want it first, and he can buy it beforehand." Even though technically, from the letter of the law, since her sale is first. Um, and only after she dies, then it would go to the husband um, as part of his inheritance. And so technically it should go to the buyers. In Usha, they said, no, this is not good. It leads to bad results. Let the husband have the right of first refusal to buy it. Um, once found to be Abu and he was in the middle of a, a lot of people in Usha. Uh, I guess the point is that it wasn't settled, it wasn't in the Bet Midrash, but he was like, I saw him in the middle of the marketplace. He says, wait, I have an urgent question. Who is the master who said this statement about this uh, enactment at Usha? As we have here, and and so Rabbi Yisak Bar Yosef uh, was very thankful that he learned this from Rabbi Abhu, and he repeated it and learned it from him 40 times until he memorized it and solidly, and it was like something that was in his pocket, in his pocket metaphor for like you acquire something, you get money, and now it's yours, and you put it in your pocket, and you keep it, uh, uh, keep it there safely. Uh, the point is that this takana was so important, he wanted to know who said it and wanted to make sure to memorize uh, its trident. Uh, sim- interestingly, similar to the pr- first three that we saw, there was a comment on the list of uh, generations uh, that they, that, who, who uh, passed it on. So, you know, we wanted to get this straight so that we can authenticate that this is a real thing that was, that was said from Usha because here, this is the sage who told it to us. Good. Now going back to the theme of taking care of children and paying for their food. The Pasuk in Mishle says, uh, happy, praiseworthy is the person who keeps justice and does righteousness all the time. Now, can someone do righteousness, give tzedakah all the time? I mean, you go and you go, you visit and you give charity here and there. You see a, a, a homeless person, help them out. But how could you do it all the time? So the Darasha explains, how can you do tzedakah all the time? By feeding your sons and daughters when they are minors. The Rishonim here uh, discuss how old we're talking about because we saw until six years old, the person has a formal obligation to support them. So that would not be called tzedakah, but rather it could be talking about more than six six years old where one should do it, but there's no absolute legal obligation. And so we can call that tzedakah. You're feeding them all the time, always taking care of anyone who knows who has kids, knows they're always hungry, especially at night, at bedtime. And so that is a type of tzedakah that you can call tzedakah that one does all the time. Rabbi Shemuel says, no, no, you can't apply this tzedakah to your own kids, but rather it's someone who brings orphan boys and orphan girls into his own house and brings them up and feeds them and marries them off and pays for their wedding. 
That is a way to perform tzedakah all the time, not just by uh, giving one check to a charity organization, but actually uh, bringing up those in need. Another pasuk in Mishlam, as someone who has wealth and riches in his house, and his charity endures forever. How could you have both of those things? See, the problem is that if I have wealth and riches in my house and I give it away, then I, don't long, I no longer have it in my house. So how can you have such a thing where I remain rich and I also give it away to others? I guess a possible solution could have been the 20% rule where uh, don't give away more, keep most of your money yourself, but give away between 10 and 20% so that your charity can endure forever. But they have different answers, and they say this is someone who learns Torah and teaches Torah, because that way, this is the riches are the Torah one learns, and you keep the Torah that you, that you learn and remember, but when you teach it over, then you also help others, and that without diminishing the original uh, knowledge that you yourself had. So you see, sharing Torah has a quality uh, that's even greater than uh, sharing money, where once you give it, then you don't have it anymore. Or another a possibility is writing down, if you're a scribe and you copy out uh, books of Torah, Nevim Ketuvim, and you lend it to someone else. So the books remain, they're still mine. So I have them, I have these riches, and I'm able to share them because I let others borrow them and read from them. And so having, uh, you know, uh, owning books and allowing others to borrow them, uh, that is another form of charity that uh, does not diminish. Another pasuk that says, um, if you see sons to your sons, meaning if you, once you have grandchildren, then there's peace among Israel. And it's the greatest blessing to see a second generation. How come there's peace when one, once someone has grandchildren? Because then you know that your uh, children will not be subject to Chalitza and Yibum if you have a son. As long as the son is, does not have, uh, have children, if he dies, then his, his wife will have to go do Yibum or Chalitza. Or if you have a daughter, um, and uh, uh, then she may have to do Chalitza or Yibum. Chalitza is problematic because the guy has to be ashamed that he's not doing Yibum. Yibum is also problematic. Sometimes they don't really want to do Yibum. It's an awkward situation. And so once you have grandchildren, then you know you're uh, out of the woods of Chalitza and Yibum. So you have Shalom. And the Bishimel Ba Nachmani Amar Kevan Shebanim Lebanecha Sham Adayanei Israel Shelo Atel once one has grandchildren, then there's peace among the judges of Israel because people will not quarrel about the inheritance. Uh, once uh, you have grandchildren, then you know that your children's estates will go to their children. And even if one's children should die and uh, uh, predecease him, then he knows that his inheritance will go to his grandchildren. Whereas, if someone has only children and not grandchildren, should his children predecease him, then what happens to an inheritance? Then the, the uncles get involved and the cousins and everybody's quarreling over who should get it. Uh, so there's uh, someone uh, that the judges are at peace when they know that there's, a, not, there's two generations uh, of a person who will inherit them in any case.
All right, next part of the Mishnah, Zemidrash, Tarash, Rabbi Elazar, Lefne, Chachamim, that Rabbi Elazar ben Azira was able to analyze the wording in the Ketubah, and he learned from that that just like sons inherit after their father's death, so too when it says that a father is responsible for feeding his daughters, that means similarly only after his death does a father have to, uh, his estate will have to feed his daughters, but not during his lifetime. Alright, Rav Yosef was sitting before Rav Hamnuna. That's a way of saying that Rav Yosef was a student uh, sitting uh, on the floor in front of Rav Hamnuna, who maybe was sitting on, um, uh, on a cushion or a bench and sitting and teaching. And Viteb Rav Hamnuna, so he was sitting, Rav Hamnuna, the teacher, was sitting and he was lecturing and teaching Rav Yosef, and he said, He was expanding on our Mishnah and bringing a further similarity between sons and daughters, and just like sons only inherit land and not possessions, not movable possessions. Now, this is not true. We're going to see in a second. So it's kind of surprising that he said this. But anyway, saying just like sons do only inherit land, so too daughters, after the father's death, when they can get fed from the father's estate, that's only land that he owns, but they have no access to movable property. Okay, that's what he said. When the teacher, Rav Hamnuna, said this, Everyone in the room started murmuring, clamoring, what is he talking about? That's not true. Sons only, uh, only, sons only inherit land? They were saying, someone who leaves land behind, then his sons inherit. Let's say a person doesn't leave land behind. Let's say he's a, he's a merchant. He, he, um, uh, he's a banker. Uh, he has uh, a fluid cash. He has animals. Um, so then his sons will not inherit. Who's going to get all of his cash? Does it go? Does it go to the state? Does it go to somewhere else? Obviously, this is not true. The sons inherit both land and movable property, so they're all like, you know, what's going on with Rav Hamnuna? Why is he saying something so crazy? Rav Yosef said, oh, I think I understand what the teacher was saying. Perhaps the master you were talking about the Ketuvah stipulation for male sons. Uh, this one of the stipulations in the Ketubah, which is actually the one we're talking about, is that the sons uh, from this marriage, it's written in the Ketubah, that any sons that this husband and wife have, that those sons will inherit the amount of the Ketubah should the wife die before the husband. If the wife dies, then the man, the husband, still has to pay the ketubah. It just goes to the sons when he dies. So if the wife dies and then the husband dies, at that point, the estate will have to pay the amount of the ketubah to the sons from that marriage. And only after that sum is taken away, the rest of the estate is split up as an inheritance. And the inheritance is split with all the sons, should the father, that, that guy have sons from other marriages.
Okay, so Rabbi Yosef says, oh, must be you're talking about the ketubah benin dichrin, meaning the amount paid for the ketubah. That is only paid from land and not movable property, which makes sense. said, see, this is a, he's a great master. He knows what I was talking about. Everybody else in the room, they assumed he was talking about the um, regular inheritance and it's only of land. And they said, he's out of his mind. And Rabbi Yosef was the only one that said, no, no, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about a ketubah. Ketubah is paid from land. The a person's land is leaned uh, to the, for the purpose of paying the ketubah, whereas the movable property is not. Okay, Amar Rabbi Hayabar Yosef. Rav zan mechite de aliyah. Okay, um, now, so now that we have this halakha, um, the, uh, and we clarified it, the main point of Ramana's halakha is that daughters are fed from the estate of their deceased father, but only from the land and not movable property. Now, this could be a problem if a person has a lot of cash, but not a lot of land. And so what if that's a, such a situation? Then will the daughter starve? So this ha- we're going to see a few stories where exactly this happened, and the rabbis were doing their best to try to find a way to make sure that the inheritance fed the daughters even from movable property. Although, so the letter of the law is only from land, but the rabbis felt bad for these uh, young daughters. So we have a report that Rav would sustain orphan girls from wheat, De aliyah, of aliyah, which we don't know what that means. So, Ibaylehu, Parnasahavya, Umay aliyah me'iluyah de'av, Uchdishmuel. One option is that the, when it says zan, it's not talking about food, but rather parnasah. Parnasah can mean anything, but here specifically means the dowry. Um, and aliyah means from the status, from the height of the father, if he's high status, very generous, or of modest means. As Shemuel said, When it comes to a dowry, if the father's alive, the father just, you know, decides how much he wants to give for the dowry to make his daughter more marriageable. If the father died, then whoever is taking care of the estate has to assess how much would the father be, afford, be able to afford and want to give for the dowry. And that's the, the amount they give. So uh, Rav uh, uh, made such a determination and said that uh, this um, uh, used wheat, meaning he used movable property, to pay for the dowry. Now that is totally acceptable. Uh, that is the letter of the law, that one's movable property can be used to pay the dowry. And so uh, Rav would have followed the letter of the law. But the word zan is ambiguous, and really it seems more likely that it means actual food. So maybe it means that Rav said that they have to pay for the daughter's food, sustenance from movable property, from wheat. And when it says de'aliyah, he means from the loft, from the upper chamber where the rabbis would often get together to decide matters. Another takana, this one doesn't say it was at Usha, 
uh, some place where they were in a second story building and they made a takana that daughters can be fed not only from land, which is the letter of the law, but even from movable property. And Rav followed that law that was in the Aliyah. So we know that Rav did something. The question is, did which one? Did he uh, not? Uh, uh, did he only pay a dowry for movable property, or is the story actually that he followed this extra legal or takana that uh, said that the daughter, this orphan daughter, can be fed even from? Movable property. So let's try to answer it. And the possession be banai, the brother be bar aba. He was uh, the custodian for property of orphans. And there were daughters, orphan daughters, and they came to Shemuel uh, to say, listen, we're starving, we need food. And Shemuel told to be Banai, the custodian, go and use the movable property to feed them. So this seems to mean that, yes, he, he followed, uh, he, he, um, he fed do, uh, orphan daughters from movable property, like the Takana, not according to the letter of the law. My love limzone, doesn't it mean for food? And he thinks that there was such a Takana, and he followed the Takana. No, not necessarily. Maybe that was talking about dowry, even though it says Zan, uh, it also just means the dowry. And actually makes more sense because they asked Shemuel and Shemuel was the one here that said that regarding Parnasa we estimate what the father would want to give um, and so there's no proof from here that we have uh, that in this story Shemuel fed kids uh, fed orphan daughters from movable property. All right so now more stories. There was incident of this kind where he had orphan daughters and they came to the judges in Nehardeah and the judges of Nehardeah said, yes, we want to make sure the estate feeds the daughters even from movable property. Also in Pumpedita, there was such a case and Rav Hana Barbizna said, movable property, you're going to use that to pay uh, for the for their sustenance. In other words, they're going against the letter of the law because they were compassionate and wanted to didn't want these daughters to have to suffer. Nachman went to these judges and said, "Go and reverse your judgments. You you can't just make up the law. And if you don't do that, then I'm going to call your judgment a false judgment to such an extent. If a judge makes a mistake, that's a really bad one. Uh, then the judge has to compensate from his own property. So I says, I will collect your apadnaichu, your houses. This is a word for a luxurious house. I'm going to take away your mansions and I'm going to use that to pay back the inheritance that you took from. So um, Rav Nachman, while I'm sure he was very compassionate, also said, you know, you have to follow the letter of the law and you can't just take money from an estate um, illegally, uh, we'll have to find some other way to take care of these children.
Rabbi Amev, Rabbi Aseh, Sebul Mezan, Mimitartele, Rabbi Amev, Rabbi Aseh, they wanted to sustain someone's daughters from their movable estate. Amar lehu, Rabbi Yaakob bar Idi, Milatad Rabbi Yochanan v'Shakish la'abdu ba'obada. Atun, Abdin ba'obada, Rabbi Yaakob bar Idi said, even the greatest of the sages, of the early sages, Rabbi Yochanan v'Shakish, they never did anything like this, and you're going to do it? Why, are you greater than the greatest sages? Right, we understand that you want to do this and want to help them, but still you can't illegally force someone to pay for something that they're not obligated to pay for. Rabbi Al-Azhar v'sabad l'mezan m'mitartadin. Rabbi Al-Azhar also wanted to make sure that daughters got fed from movable property of, an, of uh, uh, their father's inheritance. said, my master, I know you. you. You are not following the actual letter of the law of uh, justice, but rather you're being merciful, which is very nice to be merciful, you know, when you want to give charity to be merciful. But, but you have students here, they're watching you. And if they see that you uh, rule that one, that they, they inherit, the inheritance must pay for the daughters from movable property for their food, they're going to assume that that is actually the law. And they're going to teach that as the letter of the law for future generations. And so now you're misleading them and you are incorrectly establishing a law. It's very nice for this one case to say, I feel so bad for these daughters, but you, it's not right to go against the law. Or another similar case of someone that came to Rav Yosef, and he's told the sons that inherited the property, go and give your sister, right, the daughter, sustenance from dates that are on the ground. The dates that fell off the tree are on mats. They would put mats out on the ground to catch the dates that fell off so they wouldn't get ruined. He says, go give them the dates. Now, these are movable property. And he told them to, to, to do that. So Rabbi Yosef was being compassionate. Abaye objected to this and says, if this was a case of a loan, now someone who, uh, who's, uh, who comes to collect a loan has a right to collect from movable property that that person has, even if he sold that movable property um, uh, uh, beforehand, after the time of the loan, when he comes to collect the loan, he can go back to the guy who bought the that land and remove it from him because land um, is has a lien for uh, the people that um, have a written loan against it. And that's also true for a ketubah, uh, and that would be true for uh, the for feeding the for feeding the daughters. So Abaye says, if this if there was a creditor who came to collect land, would you allow him to collect from dates that fell from the tree? You wouldn't, because he does not have a lien on movable property, but rather only on land, and th- that's the law. So you can feel bad for that creditor that he might get not get his money, but you wouldn't change the law. And so to here, you might want to feel bad for these daughters, but you you don't have a legal uh, standing to allow them to collect from movable property uh, since these dates already fell.
No, no, I didn't mean that they actually fell from the ground. I meant that they are fit for the mass. They're still attached to the tree, but that they are ripe, and uh, and, and uh, therefore they should go feed them from that from those dates that are still attached to the tree, and therefore are still considered land. So if so, if we we respond. We have another principle that anything that is ready to be sheared, it's as if it already sheared, even though physically it's attached to the to the tree. Once it's totally ripe and doesn't need the tree anymore, it's considered like movable property and not like land anymore. Okay, so we changed it. I'm talking about not the uh, uh, dates that are totally ripe, but those that are still that still need the tree. They're still going to improve from being on the tree. And so those, since I still need the tree, are considered like land, and that's what he uh, told them. So you see, he did not go against the letter of the law, um, but, uh, but ordered them, or ordered them to uh, feed the, their sister, sisters from a fruit that was still attached to the tree. Another case where that orphan boy and an orphan girl came to Rava and they needed food. Uh, and so Rava told the uh, trustee of the estate, they're young, so they're not in, they're not they can't take care of the money themselves. So Rava ordered the trustee, Halulayatom Bishviliatoma. Uh, you have to so for sure that since the uh, since the since the boy is going to inherit as has already inherited, so the boy, uh, one can take from the estate anything that the boy will need. Uh, so the trustee uh, will just make sure that they're spending pro- a proper amount, and so they're going to spend for the boy's food and clothing and shelter and education, whatever the boy would need, whatever a father would spend on the boy, the trustee is authorized to take that money and spend it for the boy. That's true for the boy, but what about the girl? What's she going to what, What's going to happen to her? So if there's land, yeah, then the land is, uh, the trustee would be obligated to take from the land and pay for the sustenance of the girl. But we're talking about a case where there was no land, it was all movable objects, and so therefore the letter of the law would be that, why, sorry girl, nothing for you. But Ava said, take extra for the boy, and with that extra, also pay for the sustenance of the, of the daughter. The sages objected to Rava. says, you're the one that taught us that you can take from land, but not from movable objects. And that includes for food, for payment of the ketubah, for other matters of livelihood. And so since here there's only movable property, we should not take anything for the benefit of the daughter. So Rava explained himself, If this boy said, listen, I really need a maidservant to serve me. Uh, there was a wealthy uh, inheritance. Um, would we not give it to him? He, has, uh, he would have a right for that. And then we would tell the trustee, um, take out more money and spend it on a maidservant to serve the boy. We would. So all the more so here. In other words, we're going to take money not directly for the girl herself because that's not the letter of the law. There's no land and it's only um, uh, money. But here, it's, a, it's for the benefit of the boy that the girl be fed. Number one, it's a sister, and surely he would care about his sister. Secondly, the girl will help out around the house 
and so she will also uh, do chores that will benefit the boy, and therefore you have that double uh, reason. And so you see that Rava was able to find a, a loophole, an explanation to extract even movable uh, property for the benefit of the girls. I think there's a fascinating discussion where you have a tension between the letter of the law and we and compassion and 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 uh, ethics. And the rabbis are struggling because you can't just uh, uh, get rid of the law. Um, and there is they did try to change the law by making a takana, but evidently the takana was not very strong to up uh, upend the rule completely. And so the rabbis tried in different ways to uh, find a loophole or some kind of some way to uh, make sure that the daughters would be taken care of no matter what. Baruch Adonai Leolam, Amen v'Amen.